Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. Today is Thursday, January 19th. I'm Dan Malthrop. I'm the chief executive here, and I'm pleased to be a part of today's forum. I'm introducing it, and I'll also be moderating. This is part of our partnership with the Center for Educational Leadership at Cleveland State University, and also part of our Education Innovation Series and our Authors in Conversation Series. Now, at the City Club, our foundation is based on the ability to be accessible to individuals from all sides of every issue. We embrace the longstanding tradition of negotiation, debate, and finding common ground. And all of this is about the strength of our country and our democracy. Right now, though, I think all of us are seeing some pretty deep divisions and vitriol in many places in our society. We see them in legislatures, in the media, and even at the schoolhouse gate. These divisions often feel as if they're fraying the very fabric of our society, a society that, at least in the stories we tell ourselves, is devoted to the best traditions of small L liberal democracies, democracies devoted to freedoms, especially freedom of thought and freedom of expression. Happily, today, we might have a salve for what ails us. Our speakers today often find themselves at opposite ends of the political spectrum, but despite that, Rick Hess and Pedro Nogueira have spent a great deal of the last few years basically providing, providing proof that civil disagreement, civil disagreement is very much alive and when properly practiced can uncover vast swaths, vast swaths of common ground. Together through electronic correspondence, they co-authored a book. It's titled A Search for Common Ground, Conversations About the Toughest Questions in K-12 Education. In this book, they show how engaging an open and respectful dialogue leads to better understanding, not just of one another's perspectives and one another's stories, but also to a potential path for improving the education system that we rely on in America. Rick Hess is a senior fellow and the director of education policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also the author of several books about education and an executive editor of Education Next. He's contributed to the Harvard Education Review, The Atlantic, and The New York Times, among many other publications. Pedro Nogueira is the Emory Stoops and Joyce King Stoops Dean of U the University of Southern California Rossier School of Education. I hope I pronounced that correctly. His research focuses on the effects of social and economic conditions and demographic trends on schools. He's the author, co-author, and editor of more than a dozen books, many op-eds throughout the nation. If you have questions for our speakers, you can text them to 330-541-5794. The number again is at the bottom of the screen, 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club and we'll work it into the program. Members and friends of the City Club, please join me in welcoming Rick Hess and Pedro Nogueira. Hey guys, how are you? Hey, good to be with you. Great to great see to you, have, man. Great to have you both back at the City Club and um, congratulations on the book. It's a wonderful read and um, it's, a, it's sort of a new format, the epistolary policy book. Um, but also, I want to compliment you guys for actually writing the book during COVID at a moment when everybody was like, oh, this is the time I'm going to write a book. And you guys actually did it. So well done. Um, Pedro, can you start off just telling us like where the idea came from? How this, how the, I mean, there were a lot of ideas during those first early months of COVID. But tell us the story. So uh, just to, to just correct that, it's actually a pre-COVID book. At least we started pre-COVID. And then uh -huh. by the time we continued the writing, uh, we were under lockdown. Uh, so all the credit goes to Rick. Rick, it was Rick's idea. Uh, Rick approached me and asked me if I'd be willing to join him. 
um, in, in this book? And I immediately said yes, um, because I, I appreciate the need for debate and dialogue about important issues uh, related to education. Uh, long before the polarization on a lot of the, our political issues, we've been having a very polarized debate in education around a number of policy questions that I thought was become fruitless. It just was uh, people staking out their positions and pointing fingers. And uh, Rick is a person who I've respected because I've always found him to be a person who grounds his opinions in facts and information. And while I might disagree with his uh, key arguments, um, I've always felt they were at least based on on, on facts, <laughs> um, even if he misinterpreted them. Um, and so I, I willingly decided I would join him in this venture of the book, and I'm um, glad we did. Rick, you know a lot of people in uh, the education world. Why did you reach out to Pedro? Um, <clears throat> you know, partly it had to do with why I thought the book seemed worth doing. Um, for a long time, education, even with the debates that Pedro just alluded to, uh, often felt <clears throat> relatively purple. When you think back to a lot of the school reform debates um, during, say, the Bush years or the Obama years, No Child Left Behind, Race to the Top, Charter Schooling, these were contentious, but they weren't contentious on right-left lines. Uh, there were They tended to be fragmented, and the debates were therefore, I think, heated, but a little more interesting. What's happened over the last decade is education has kind of gotten sucked into a lot of the same right-left polarization that shapes a lot of debate today. And so when I start, and so I think for both Pedro and me, this has been enormously frustrating because I think both of us, not only are we, do we, I think we respect facts, but we also respect that education is ultimately about what happens to real kids and real adults and real schools. And that is complicated and tends, to, tends not to align neatly with either narratives of the right or left. And I wanted somebody, therefore, who shared my frustration, who believed in the value of lighting a candle, um, who understood the importance of thinking in terms of how things work in the real world, but was obviously on the left because we needed to kind of bridge this, uh, this right-left standoff. And when I started thinking about that, the list of people who, I, who, who fit that criteria, who I really just respect, who I find... Um, thoughtful whether or not I agree with what they're saying. It's not that long. And at the top of the list was Pedro. So I think it was probably about Thanksgiving 2019, give or take. I picked up the phone. I gave him a call. We chatted for half an hour. Uh, and it didn't take a lot of convincing. You know, what What I love about the book, a few things. Uh, I'm a big fan of the, of, of the work that both of you have produced over the years. You both have spoken at the City Club at different times. Um, and, uh, and as Pedro pointed out, you both kind of base your points of view in, in two things, really, I think, in, in facts, but also your experience in the classroom. Both of you are, class, are former classroom teachers. And I think that's, a not, um, that's not always the case with people who are making very strong arguments on one side or another about, about education policy. Um, and throughout the book, you, can, you both continue to reflect back on, well, your own experience with students or your experience as consultants to schools and school leaders and what's actually happening inside of school buildings. Um, 
that seems to be a really important piece, at least that I encountered as a reader. But I wonder if you felt that that was a really important thread through the book as well, Rick. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I think both that respect for for facts and the idea that there can be good arguments on both sides. And it's not that we're necessarily right. It's that our arguments also reflect our values and our experiences. And so I can respect Pedro's arguments, even when I think they're incorrect or when I disagree. Um, but it's also that it's not just abstract. I mean, I think this came up a lot during the pandemic, that a lot of folks would talk about following the science. Well, well how science translates to real lives of real kids and teachers and families is actually really complicated. Locking schools and shuttering them and telling kids to stay at home is not just about what somebody thinks they can extrapolate from some study of air quality particles 40 years ago, but how does this actually play out for kids in those environments, for their mental and social health, for the learning, for the quality of remote learning? And so I think the debates about schooling, while they should always be informed by a respect for facts and evidence, always have to come back to how does this actually play out in real lives? And for Pedro, I mean, Pedro, you know, as a guy who sat on school boards, a guy who's taught, a guy who lives in this world and is passionate about that. Um, and I, I think for me, that's part of what made the, makes the exchanges so rewarding is that we're not talking about abstract debates. We're talking about how do you link those debates back to the real world of families and kids and communities. Pedro Noguera, what was the most surprising thing about this process um, of writing the book with Rick and um, and then bringing it out into the world? What's been the most surprising thing for you? Well, two things. And it, the first builds on what Rick was just saying is that, um, you know, because we did it um, through email where we had time to reflect on what the last person just said, um, we weren't just staking out positions. We were really listening to each other, responding thoughtfully to what we had just heard. And um, I don't think that could have happened if we had done this as a live debate at the uh, City Club in, in, in Cleveland. Um, um, it would have been more challenging. Maybe now, having done the book, less so. But um, I think when there's an audience like that, there's a tendency to posture to try to get points for your side. And um, that's not what this book was about. It really was, I think, a more thoughtful exercise in listening and in engaging in dialogue, which I, I value and appreciate. Um, the other thing that's been surprising, I think, is the reaction. Um, on the one hand, I would say we've gotten great outpouring of interest from, you know, throughout the country. Um, you know, we've spoken at events, mostly virtually, but in mm -hmm. Wyoming, in um, uh, Kentucky, and all, all over the country, and a great interest in the book. Um, I remember we did an event at the Reagan Institute, you know, so um, I, I've been really encouraged by that because it, it tells me that the country's yearning and looking, there's a lot of interest in this kind of dialogue, um, which I think is really encouraging. What's What's surprising is who's not interested. And I think the people on either ends, the most extreme on the right or the left, are probably the people least interested because they're not interested in dialogue. They're more interested in staking out positions. And um, does that you know, include legislators? Probably. 
probably, that would be my guess. Uh, but it includes a lot of academics, which I find disappointing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, um, there are many people now who um, require it for their courses, which is good, good for us, I think. But um, there are, you know, I propose this, uh, that, that they invite Rick and I to speak at a big education conference, uh, no interest. Uh, and I think it's because they're more focused on, you know, a particular more left uh, liberal, I don't even call it left, uh, liberal agenda that mm -hmm. they don't see this as part of. So, you know, um, that says a lot about state of higher ed in some ways. <laughs> yeah. Rick, I, I want to ask you about, uh, you know, a different a different angle on the surprise question. But I, I feel certain that there were moments when you you said, all right, we're going to talk about this topic. And, and I'm going to lay it out and, and Pedro's going to come at it from all the way over there. And he actually agreed with you on a lot of things. What, what was that? What, where were the places where you were surprised by how aligned you started or you found yourselves? Yeah, you know, I think one was certainly testing. Um, and Pedro was probably equally surprised. Uh, you know, we have this, well, we, we've tended to define going back at least 20 years to No Child Left Behind during the Bush years. Mm -hmm. uh, you've been either for testing or against testing. Mm -hmm. And generally it's been folks on the right, Republicans who were seen as for testing and folks on the left who were seen as anti-testing. And right out of the gate, if folks take a look at the book, they'll see Pedro and I, <laughs> we both thought that was a ludicrous framing. I said, look, um, when you test, you know, when you make school all about testing and reading and math, you gut civics instruction, you shortchange science, uh, you distort what's getting taught in reading. And there's all kinds of problems with mm -hmm. how we think about as what, what schools are excellent and what good teachers are doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and, and so, so it's not healthy. And this is crazy. What we care about is making sure that kids are well served and schools are doing their job. And Pedro said, yeah, um, I'm not against testing. Uh, he said tests have a real role to play, but we've got to be... So I think testing was certainly one. Um, I think conversations about choice and privatization were another. Um, Pedro has a wonderful analogy in the book. He talks about, uh, as a kid in New York City, the way in which the subway was just um, a model of folks from all walks of life uh, sharing a common space. And I said, I respect the hell out of that, but I don't know how you do that in a place like Santa Fe or uh, you know, so much of the country where the geography is different and the density is different. And there maybe there's a lot of other solutions that are environmentally friendly that involve, uh, you know, rent the bikes or whatnot from private providers and pay. So I think one of the things was when we got away from kind of the talking points, like Pedro said, that you tend to revert to when you're doing your 10 second soundbite on cable news or when we're kind of trading punches in front of an audience, Mm -hmm. And what we're talking about, what is the issue here and where are we specifically? Mm -hmm. um, again, when it starts talking about solving real problems, what kinds of vendors do you need to get kids the tutoring they need because they're not well served? Um, how do you make sure school choice is a real thing and not a talking point in terms of transportation and existence of options? Mm -hmm. And once we got to that stuff, you know, like you might suggest, like you might suspect, the differences were just a lot more manageable and a lot narrower than when we're talking about testing good or bad school choice good or bad right the you know there's 
in my head, there's like a, a, a different path we could take right now where I set up like, like points of disagreement and try and provoke you guys to argue and yell at each other, which I think would be hilarious. We're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> but I want to ask you, you know, we're, we're doing this event today with the, um, the Center for Educational Leadership at Cleveland State University. So the audience, a huge portion of the audience are administrators, principals, uh, you know, um, people who are, who are really interested in statewide policy, school board members, that kind of thing. They are encountering these disagreements, these fundamental disagreements over curriculum, uh, curricular choices, over school funding, over, you know, how the, the state ought to embrace or support social emotional learning or not. Um, and, you know, and all sorts of issues. And I, I want to ask you both, like, how should they, the, the leaders in our community, across our communities who are charged with, with devising education policy and implementing education policy, how should they be thinking about their work? Pedro? Yeah, I, I think it's very important that they are as nonpartisan um, as possible. That is that educational issues, we have to put the interest of kids first. Now, having said that, there's still going to be disagreements uh, about issues, how you set budget priorities, for example. Do you prioritize a music program over kindergarten aids? I mean, that might seem like a terrible choice, but that's the kind of choice I was faced with as a board member um, um, many years ago. And But you want to make sure that the people who are making those kinds of decisions are doing so with the, with the broad interests of the community in mind, not with a pet agenda because they were elected by a party um, and they're trying to push a particular program. And that concerns you right now. There was a... Uh, we've seen this happen across the country. Good people getting taken out as superintendents because a narrow group came on and they wanted to push some agenda to ban books or to get rid of um, um, some materials. And, 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 you know, in many cases in rural areas, there are not a lot of other folks who want to be superintendent, you know, or want to serve on the school board. So you're really just undermining the system. Uh, and I know in Ohio, there are a whole lot of folks who love their football teams uh, and their, 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 you know, their public schools are the center of the community. And so what I would really appeal to is let's let's keep the civic purpose of education in mind. It's good for our communities to come together to support our kids and not a particular political agenda. When that happens, um, we actually undermine education and we undermine the, um, the, the well-being the, uh, of our kids and our communities, I believe. Rick Hess, a lot of these, uh, these controversies or the, the tension that Pedro is alluding to comes uh, during the public comment section of your local, any local school board meeting, basically. Um, and how, you know, that, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's fine for Pedro to say be nonpartisan. But when you're sitting there and, and, you, and you have a, you know, a family, uh, a parent in your community who might be your neighbor, who is getting really heated about their perception that critical race theory is being taught in their school. Um, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, um, so I think there's a couple things. I think 
you know, one, uh, in talking about the book a lot of times, Peter and I have talked about it, something like going to the gym. Um, you know, it's about it's about building a certain set of skills and getting and, and training. One of the problems with social media and the way we debate issues today, and particularly over the last couple of years during the pandemic, is we are much less likely, we know, to engage as full people. We're much less likely to talk about these issues in the same room. Uh, we're much less likely to have spent time with one another so that we have some human context in terms of our families or our faiths or knowing each other. So if the first and only time school board members are hearing from parts of the community is during comment, comment moments at a school board meeting, uh, it basically sets the conditions for the most destructive and toxic kind of exchange. Um, it creates a sense where people feel like they have not been heard or have been ignored, and they see school board members as one-dimensional figures, and so they shout at these one-dimensional caricatures. And the school board members and the district leadership, in turn, look at the people, the hotheads, and reduce them to one-dimensional uh, you know, prob problem citizens. So I think the first thing is everybody needs to go back to the gym. And this is to start with the people who've chosen to inhabit positions of leadership. If you want to be a civic leader, a superintendent, a school board member, your, your job should include making the first move. You've got to bring these people in. You've got to sit down with them. You've got to invite them to share their concerns so that if they're going to speak in those public forums, they are sharing things they have already said privately and that you've had a chance to digest. This won't take the heat out of the public forums, and it shouldn't. We live in a democratic nation with democratic schools. But if people don't feel ignored or slighted, we know, generally speaking, both from experience in social science, that they, they're likely to engage more, more, more productively. So that's one thing. I think a second thing is what you mentioned, what you and Pedro mentioned a moment ago, is one of the reasons I think this book worked like it did is because Pedro and I weren't trying to hash this through. Um, in front of 100 members of an audience or on cable TV. We had a chance to write. Um, I'm sure there are things I wrote, and Pedro was like, Rick, what are you talking about? But had a chance to think on it, sleep on it, cool off a bit, and then respond. And, and so partly, what are we doing to create those public spaces? How are we training superintendents and school board members to do that with one another? Um, how are we creating the opportunities for them to hear thoughts or share thoughts in a forum where there's a little bit of space? Um, how are school boards using retreats as a chance to actually digest rather than react to currents? Um, you know, public sunshine laws uh, make this tougher on public officials to mm -hmm. actually have those kinds of private trust building conversations. That makes it all the more important that superintendents and their teams work with the folks. So look, I think part of it is we've got to make sure we understand that you know, more in common has done great polling on this. I, I, I'm convinced that 70, 80% of Americans want the kind of thing that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But the, the public airspace, the school board meetings tend to get filled up with the 20% who are having a lot of fun screaming and causing chaos. And if we want to take that space back from the folks who are having fun at the fringes, it requires more than just saying it. It requires serious action to build those skills and to engage members of the community who want to push back on the nuttiness. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I like that idea of um, of really 
helping and supporting school board members and superintendents and leaders to rethink how they do their work so that it's not just about showing up at the meeting and, you know, uh, pretending to, you know, to, to, to engage. The public comment, I, school board meetings have always struck me as bizarre because they are, because those, those public comment moments are, you know, like they're not, they're not real. And most of the time, oftentimes you've got school board members who are just looking at their phones and, you know, and, and they can't, and they're, they're actually not permitted to respond in many cases, or there's no, there's no, there's no incentive to respond or engage. So it's, it's just, it's sort of like people talking past each other. Um, so I, I really, I, I like that a lot. I wonder if we, I, we're going to go to audience questions in a second. And I should just mention again, that if you have a question for Rick Hess and Pedro Nogueira, the number is 330-541-5794. Just text that and it'll get fed to me and we'll, we'll put it into the program. If you're on Twitter, uh, the, you can tweet at the city club and we will work it in. Um, and I should mention too, that the book is called a search for common ground conversations about the toughest questions in K-12 education. And if you're a city club member, you can get a discount at max backs on Coventry. Um, so, uh, and you can email info at the city at cityclub.org uh, to get more information about that. But, um, I would like to try a little experiment with you guys and take an issue that is K-12 adjacent, um, and, and ask you to demonstrate what what listening across difference actually looks like. The Supreme Court is um, uh, deciding on an affirmative action, a, a couple of affirmative action cases that have gotten rolled up together. Um, and the a lot of people feel like the, the future of college admissions is sort of hanging in the balance. And I'd like to ask you to both kind of like briefly lay out how you see this, what the stakes are, and what you think the solution ought to be. And um, and, and show us what, you know, what finding common ground looks like for a second. Can we do that? I didn't, I didn't, I, I this is a total audible. So I hope you'll go along with me, but I feel like it's very much on people's minds right now. Um, so Pedro, let's start with you. You're in higher ed, you're both in higher yep. ed, but like, you know, I feel like, go ahead. Sure, so it's some, an issue I care about and have written about and debated um, before. I would say that those who believe that affirmative action is no longer necessary, because as a nation, we've overcome racism. I would say, first of all, look at our schools and how segregated and unequal they remain. Um, and I would say, if you're really interested in leveling the playing field so that race doesn't matter, let's start in kindergarten. Let's start by making sure that when kids go to kindergarten, they're going to equal schools. Not some, I mean, think about the schools in Cleveland right now and ask, how many of those affluent suburb, suburban families would put their kids in Cleveland public schools? And that'll tell you what the problem is right now throughout the country. We have unequal schools, and then we pretend in higher ed, we can make everybody, treat everybody the same. Um, now, and then I would also add that affirmative action is the, the strategy we have used, albeit a flawed strategy, to ensure that we have professionals from a variety of backgrounds, right? When we don't have professionals from a variety of backgrounds, doctors, lawyers, et cetera, what it means is certain communities don't get served, right? Because black doctors are more likely to serve in black communities, and that's still the case. So the implications of cutting it off have to be thought through. At the same time, I'll also say this in my search for common ground, I understand 
that people who are against affirmative action, I don't call them racist because they're against affirmative action. I want to hear their arguments. I think there's a perception amongst many white people in America that somehow it works it to their disadvantage. And I would say, let's let's discuss it and look at it, look at the evidence rather than simply stake out positions. But um, I, I think that, that the rationale for it, the reason why the Nixon administration, a Republican administration took the lead in enacting affirmative action, those reasons are still very much alive and well in America today. Rick Hess, there's sort of three points in there that, that Pedro made that I, that I heard. You might have heard more than that, but I heard we should start at kindergarten and truly level the playing field at kindergarten if you're going to go there, you may as well go to pre-K as well and, and right. universal yes, pre-K. Um, two, we need to consider the implications for cutting it off, the implications for broader society. If we were to end affirmative action, what that would mean in not having a truly diverse professional workforce. And number three, kind of a rhetorical question, not so much rhetorical, but who is actually disadvantaged by affirmative action? Um, where do you, how, how do you respond? Where do you agree? Where do you disagree? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, I start with the idea that I think uh, race-based policies um, are fun fundamentally problematic uh, under the 14th Amendment and under the Civil Rights Act. I think uh, affirmative race-based affirmative action is unlawful and unconstitutional, um, and that it does more to, so, to, to, to aggravate um, the wounds that Pedro has alluded to than to help cure them. So that's where I start from. Um, I think Pedro's right that if if somebody is there, that absolutely the question is, how do you know, if if that's my stance, um, and we know that there are uh, that, that that American life is is unequal in all kinds of ways that troubles us, uh, we have to address that, and I think Pedro's right that we have to think about um, kindergarten, uh, did twelve, and what comes before, and absolutely. Uh, we have to, and now we're going to disagree on what it means to address that. But Pedro is right that part and parcel of talking about the problems with affirmative action is the need to talk about how do we address that in other ways. Um, as far as uh, the the impacts on, say, professionals and such, look, my stance is um, the problems with affirmative action don't exist in isolation. Um, you know, many of the advocates uh, for affirmative action have pointed out that people who are troubled by affirmative action don't seem troubled by legacy admissions, where the fact that your parent or grandparent went to a college means you should get in. That is absolutely immoral. Colleges which take federal funds, federal research funds, which were students over uh, federal student lending, should not uh, be engaging in legacy admissions. If you want to run an institution that offers legacy admissions, it should be done completely unaided by any public funds, which is essentially uh, one or two colleges out of the 4,000 that exist in the U.S. Uh, Hillsdale may be the only one. Um, it's also the case that colleges engage in all other kind of unseemly behavior. Um, one of the things that the Harvard and UNC uh, lawsuits have brought to light is the payoff-based admissions and shakedowns through which the rich and connected buy their kids' ways into places like Harvard and UNC. And if Pedro wants to say that, like Rick, there's problems about who's going to get into college if you do with affirmative action, part and parcel of solving that is making sure that the rich and connected no longer are buying seats through these other avenues. So for me, the response to Pedro is, okay, um, 
we can talk about other ways that colleges and grad schools um, are taking account of where folks with medical degrees say they want to practice, what kind of medicine they want to practice. Those are fair questions, but they should be driven by the needs that Pedro identified. We need people to work in these communities rather than by the pigmentation of the people they're admitting. Because we also know that the fact is law, medical schools can admit black uh, uh, black applicants who are going to choose to work uh, as plastic surgeons in Beverly Hills. And there's no reason to presume that the fact that their pigmentation tells us who they want to serve or what communities they're interested in serving. So sure. it's fair to ask those questions, but we should ask them in ways to get at the need rather than make presumptions based on pigmentation. So in listening to the two of you, the only, the, the relatively small bit of common ground I heard is an agreement that inequities exist today and that in an ideal world, we would begin by addressing those inequities as early in a child's life as possible. Is that kind of where, am I, am I hearing that right? I th so I think this goes to the larger project that I think that's probably right at, at a conceptual level. Mm -hmm. But I think, for instance, if we talk about the real world of policy and practice, yeah, that it's what, what, I, what I think I heard is Pedro and I could probably identify a half dozen specific recommendations regarding what colleges are allowed to do in terms of application admissions, in terms of how, how these things ought to operate, where we might still have fundamental philosophical disagreements, but where we can identify a, a, a series of specific, specific actions uh, that we would both uh, that we would both be comfortable endorsing. Pedro. Yeah, I mean, I think the mechanics of how we do this is where it gets complicated. I, for example, have argued that if you don't like using race, let's use geography as a, as a criteria for getting people in, because we know that many communities are still very segregated. So we mm -hmm. can target communities that we need people from um, certain from Appalachia. People from Appalachia should have a right to go to college and should be admitted to some of our top colleges because we need to make sure there's representation of poor whites from Appalachia in some of Ohio's top schools. Now, of course, those should be the top students from Appalachia, right? Um, but I, I think that kind of um, outreach um, based on geography, um, given the segregated nature of our society, segregated by race and even more profoundly by class um, is a way to address some of this. But we have to acknowledge the need and we have to acknowledge the way nepotism works. The way, you know, for the longest time in many cities like New York and Chicago, if you weren't Irish, you couldn't become a police officer or a fireman. Um, and it wasn't because the Irish are better at putting out fires than anybody else. It was because they controlled those jobs they had, you know, if you were, if you didn't know someone, you weren't related to someone, you didn't even have a chance. What affirmative action did was say, look, there's got to be a test. We got to make sure there's representation because we need police officers and fire people from a variety of communities. You know, the primary beneficiaries of affirmative action have been white women. And, and, and that's part of what we have to realize. White people have benefited from affirmative action because white women are part of the white community too, right? And so um, when we see barriers related to race and gender coming down, what we're doing is creating a more inclusive society. And I think we should all want that. 
Okay, we're gonna move to uh, this. Is great. I could do this. Just what we're what we're trying to untangle here, like sit with this thorny issue for the next hour and a half. But um, but the audience would be upset because they've got questions and they're coming in right now. If you have a question for uh, Dr. Pedro Nogueira or Dr. Rick Hess, you can uh, text it to three three zero five four one five seven nine four. That number's again at the bottom of the screen. You can also tweet the question at the City Club and we'll work it in. The book we're talking about is A Search for Common Ground, Conversations About the Toughest Questions in K-12 Education. And uh, we're really just delighted to have uh, both Pedro Nogueira and Rick Hess here, both former City Club speakers in the past. We've had them here in person. And we're gonna go to, to um, some audience questions. I've got them over here on another screen. When we talk about tough questions in K-12 education, a big one, is not enough kids are prepared for the technological challenges facing our society in energy tech, quantum computing, et cetera. How do we overcome this? Who wants it? Rick, you were smiling first, you go. Um, I mean, boy, it's a big question. It's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think, I mean, one of the interesting things about doing this in education is that it, it, you, you get to a high enough level of abstraction, we agree on everything. We all want kids to have rich, challenging educations that make them feel blah, blah, blah. Um, and part of that is we want we want kids to have the skills to do this kind of crucial work. Um, look, when we think about something like quantum computing or the kids who are going to figure out how do we deal with the, the challenges of climate change, um, it requires extraordinary familiarity with science. Um, some kids are more passionate about this stuff than others. That's partly a function, um, I think, of nature. It's partly a function of nurture. It's partly a function of what they get exposed to. Uh, as a nation, we benefit when more kids um, are exposed to and given opportunities to flourish in these areas. But we also got to understand that not all kids are going to flourish equally. Um, just like Patrick Mahomes, father, it, it's no, I think, accident that his father was a professional athlete. Uh, it's the, the, you know, there are things that get passed on and shared time with families and parents and siblings. And part of the challenge, I think, is how do we do a more effective job of getting terrific teachers in science and math, of making sure we're using online opportunities and intensive tutoring to give kids the supports and the opportunities we need, uh, to make sure we're using high quality research to identify uh, good learning and instructional materials and providing those, um, but also celebrating excellence and celebrating achievement and not allowing, as I fear we sometimes have in the last few years, gotten to the point where we are worried constantly that excellence is somehow a threat to our notions of equity. Pedro? Yeah, so I, I've actually been writing about this, wrote an op-ed about these, uh, what I'm, I'm very concerned about math access uh, in particular. Over half of Americans fear and hate math. And that's a cross race. Um, and, and a lot of it is related to how they learn math. Um, and, and here's the problem. Many of our elementary school teachers were not strong in math themselves. So if you have someone who's not strong in math teaching our kids math, and by the time our kids get to middle school where they're supposed to take algebra, they are already, you know, we've already lost half of them. And we're seeing the results of so many kids who want to go to college stuck in remedial math courses. So we have a huge math problem and it's an equity issue. It's an equity issue because it disproportionately affects low income kids, kids of color. 
And so what we see is a real dearth of uh, people of, of low income and, 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 and kids of color in math and science programs. We still see it for women. And uh, what it means is some of the best paying jobs across the country um, are not serving uh, people from those backgrounds. We are more, but this is, you know, if you think about it, if you look at what's happening at the college level, you'll see most of the students who are in computer science and engineering are immigrant. They're not white males either, <laughs> right? Because white males would prefer to study business um, than, than to go into a field like engineering computer science. So we have to address this as a pipeline issue. We have to do a better job earlier on getting kids motivated and interested, and we have to really improve the efficacy of our teachers. We need to get more people who are strong in math and science becoming teachers. And that challenge is complicated because we pay teachers. Well, so well, well, one of the complexities that kind of Pedro points to is, right, a lot of this is, say, a K-5 issue. And the reality is, right now, the people who want to be K-5 teachers uh, aren't don't want to be K-5 teachers because they like math, like Pedro said. Um, and a lot of the training in math, uh, teacher preparation, is not very strong. One possible solution to some of this is what they call departmentalization, which is your strongest math teachers spend more time teaching math instead of other subjects. But that also can be disruptive in real schools because it can, it, it can disrupt the relationship of students with their third or fourth grade teachers. Uh, it can change the way that elementary schools are organized. So it's not just a question of can we identify these teachers and put them in a strong position. It's also that when you actually put this into real schools with real kids, new com new complications, you know, jump at you. I mean, yes, but I mean, I think we all have had elementary. We've all recently, fairly recently, watched our own children go through elementary schools, right? And so, and in elementary schools, there are all there are these pullout programs or push-in programs for gifted and talented youth, right, that are typically started around mathematics, right? So we take our brightest kids and we give them a different teacher for math. And that seems to work pretty well for them. So why- well, actually, one of, the, one of the interesting things is that stuff has come under a pressure. Again, when we talk about um, equity and excellence, one solution would be, hey, let's make sure that math teachers are working with every child. Yeah. But in fact, what we've seen is pressure against any of that kind of instruction at all uh, in the name of equity, we we have done we have done away with a lot of that and folded those teachers into kind of the day to day. So again, when it comes to how do we practically offer these opportunities to every child, um, they get they, they get thorny. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Yeah, that's really interesting. Paper, but, you know, again, yeah. I would have to caution us here. You know, the the um, a lot of times when we confuse giftedness with is privilege. Uh, yeah. A lot of those kids who are so-called gifted um, are, um, you know, they've come from highly educated parents who had a lot of time to invest in their children. And, you know, I, my wife went to a school for the gifted in New York City. And, and the joke I always make with her is um, if your classmates were so gifted, how come as they became adults, they became so ordinary? Most of them are not gifted adults. And uh, they're just ordinary. They should have like more Nobel Prize winners. Is exactly. that what you're saying? They're just dentists and accountants and lawyers. They're, they're not gifted. Um, and so I, I think. How we, dare you, sir? <laughs> you know, just because a kid is reading fast. And but at the other yeah. side is I don't want to slow kids down either. Every right. kid needs to be challenged. Every kid needs to be pushed. Yes. So the challenge is how do we make sure we're not, uh, you know, 
favoring some kids because they come from homes like yours, Dan, and getting the best teachers, and the other kids who need more support are left to languish. That's yeah. the problem I see. That is the, that's, the, that's the challenge. And um, I'm going to go to another question here that's very relevant to our local community. It's going to require a little explanation. Um, Dr. Hess, in your first book, Spinning Wheels, you talk about the challenges of policy churn in urban school districts, mostly due to repeated leadership turnover. Cleveland is currently searching for its next administrative leader, its next uh, CEO. It's the first time we've done this since 2010. Um, what recommendations do both of you have for our community to ensure the benefits of our uncharacteristic leadership stability and to, to ensure that those benefits can be sustained? Rick, we'll start with you. Uh, sure. You know, I mean, one of the interesting things in education is historically, you know, big cities have turned over their superintendents every three years or so. Mm -hmm. And part of the way you get the job is you can't come in and say, well, we're going to keep doing what we're doing and figure it out. Cause that sounds like you're not passionate about making a difference. So you come in with some new reform program. So that means every, every 36 months at a minimum, you're launching a major wave of new reforms. And what teachers learn is they learn to close their door and tell each other this too shall pass. And none of it winds up actually impacting what happens in classrooms. The advantage of sustained leadership is you have a chance to actually take in a set of ideas, um, work them on, work on them, push them, get buy-in and get trust among the professionals in the schools, the, the members of the community, and these things can actually make a difference for kids. The problem with that is it can also you can also wind up in a stagnant situation where you're not actually pushing yourself, where you're comfortable with what's going on when you shouldn't be, and it's not like in any organization, schools or nonprofits or for-profits, that there's a magic solution to like how much change and how much stability. Uh, but what you always want to be asking yourself is, are the changes we're proposing practical? Can we actually make them work? And are we giving them a chance to work? And if they're not working or we've given them a chance and they're not getting traction, then it's time to change. And so I think those are the questions that you need to be asking potential new CEOs. Make sure you're not giving us the same spiel you'd be giving some other district with very different circumstances, but see how much they've bothered to learn about where Cleveland's at. See how much they've bothered to investigate the situations and the stakeholders and who's invested in, who's invested in where things stand. How are their ideas reflective of where the challenges are in this district today? And then you make your best judgment. Pedro Naguera, I suspect you've been on a few search committees in your in your career. Yeah, and I actually know Cleveland. So um, first, let me give a lot of credit to Eric. What's Eric's last Eric name? Eric Gordon. Eric Gordon. Eric Gordon uh, for yeah. having stayed so long and having provided um, thoughtful leadership for many years. You know, Cleveland is a really challenging place because of the poverty in Cleveland, and I think he did a, he did a great job. Now, I also was in Cleveland, worked with Cleveland before Eric was superintendent. And I remember when Barbara Bird Bennett was superintendent. And I don't want to kick someone while they're down. because she's I think she's still doing time in Illinois um, uh, for her. Uh, anyway, that's, yes. that's, a, that's a tangent. But um, I remember when the place was was a wreck and, yes. and, 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 and schools were being shut down and principals were being asked to open schools when they didn't even have a guaranteed job. It, it was just a disaster. So I would really encourage the community 
to try to find somebody like Eric from the standpoint of someone whose interests really are in making Cleveland as good as possible, on drawing on the, the, the resources of that great city to support the schools, on getting parents involved, um, the kind of work that the, that's been going on, build on that, um, rather than looking for somebody who has no commitment to Cleveland, who'll be there just to, you know, until they can get an, another job in another place. And that's what we run the risk of that we see happening so often. So, um, you know, I would say in so many of these cities, and Cleveland is a good example, we'll invest much more in our sports teams than we will in our schools, you know? And um, if we love the, um, the, the, our schools as much as we do football or basketball, we'd have great schools in Cleveland. Here's our next question. In the last few years, we've witnessed very public differences in thought about the purpose of education. Where do you see the common threads in how disparate peoples are talking about this? Pedro, let's start with you. You know, I think most people, when you ask parents, what do they want for their kids? Mm-hmm. They, they, they want their kids to be um, productive. They want them to be, they want them to learn. They want them to be happy. They want them to be honest people. They, they talk about the character. Um, you know, some people are concerned about how much money they'll earn, but I would think most people know that their kids get good jobs, but they're miserable, um, that, that they haven't really succeeded. So they want very similar things for their kids. What I think the challenge is, is to get parents to see that all people deserve that, not just your kids, right? And we have to think about all kids, not just those um, who have um, the parents with the most resources, but I, I think, going back to Rick's point, that what, what parents want are really not that different when you kind of go across communities. And, and I think the challenge for policymakers is to get the public to see that, that we really don't need to fight over these things. We can work together to achieve uh, what most parents want for their kids. Rick Hess? Yeah, I think that's well said. I, I think, you know, one place where I think some of the division creeps in is, um, you know, the, one, of the, one of the ways you raise money if you run advocacy groups um, is you've got you've to you've make these things stand out. So if you are, um, you, you know, if you're on the right and you're troubled by some of what I think is really goofy stuff happening in schools uh, under the umbrella of, say, critical race theory, you don't say there's some specific problems here and we got to push back and address them you wind up trying to do this in a way that's going to get you time on Fox News and make a crusade out of it. And I think the same thing on the left. Um, what you could say was, I think, the way Pedro says it, which is really constructive and supports a conversation, is like, look, we need to make sure that all of these families get the opportunity to put their kids in a position to succeed. Um, there are a lot of folks in, uh, I think, advocacy groups and schools of education um, who don't talk about it in that universal aspiration of parents but talk about the selfish middle class, which is busy. And I think when you start saying that parents trying to get their kids support or get their kids tutoring is somehow malignant or evil or problematic, um, that that makes it really hard for us to come around these points where there really is broad agreement and start talking about how to get them done. So I think part of the issue is those of us who are interested in 
solving these problems for all kids, even with our disagreements and divides, really mm -hmm. need to push back on the folks who are exploiting kind of extremism and indulging in divisive messaging because it helps them raise funds and helps them get on Fox and MSNBC, whether or not it's good for our actual efforts to solve problems in communities. If you have a question for Rick Hess or Pedro Nogueira, or chances are I'll just put it to both of them, you can text it to 330-541-5794, or you can tweet it at the City Club. We'll work it in. Um, uh, one of our uh, longstanding City Club member uh, texted in to ask that we correct the record about Barbara Bird Bennett. She is at home now enjoying her freedom. So thank you very much for that correction. We're happy to correct the record. Um, the next question, um, pretty direct. Can we talk about teachers? We almost are, this is from a teacher. We are almost never part of discussions about what kids need. And yet we are there with them every day. We're the professionals on the ground, but mostly ignored. Why? You guys don't actually ignore them in the book at all. Um, there's a chapter devoted to the common ground you found around teacher pay. Um, but maybe I should ask this or to, to address the question that the, this teacher is asking. Why do you think teachers are ignored so much in these big debates? Go ahead, you know, Peter. Uh, I, I think because teachers are busy, hardworking, and um, they don't have the luxury of time like people like Rick and I do. I mean, both of us are former teachers, but it's not the same as getting someone who is in the in the work. You have to do it, you know, engage, stage these in ways that teachers can participate. Um, you know, teaching is hard work, and uh, you know, I just had a long exchange with a teacher last night via email because they, they were reacting to an op-ed I wrote. And I, I took the time to really give a very thoughtful response because I thought the teacher was making excellent arguments. He's a math teacher. Um, but, you know, teachers a lot of times don't have that luxury because they're so busy grading papers when they get home um, and preparing for the next day. So, um, yes, we need to hear from teachers more but we need to create the opportunities for teachers to participate because the kind of work they do demands their full attention and they don't always have the luxury of being able to participate in these policy debates. Um, so, yeah, but I, so, I, so I certainly, I, I agree with everything Pedro just said is part of it, but I think there's, there, there's a couple other things going on too. I did a book on this called The Cage Busting Teacher about a decade ago, uh, which folks might find partly it talked about exactly this challenge uh, part of it's what pedro is saying the teachers are working hard and they're busy um there's a second part of it which is that what does it mean uh to talk about teachers um i mean i don't know where i sit it does feel like teachers get talked about a lot not always in ways that are respectful of the work or acknowledge that there's a lot going on when you're talking about a profession with three and a half million people um but it's also the case that teachers aren't always in those conversations or rarely in those conversations as much as they'd like. But honestly, this is also the same complaint that you'll hear from cops about conversations about policing, uh, that you hear from physicians on conversations about healthcare, and that you certainly hear from the troops about conversations of military deployments. Uh, in some sense, when you work for the public, uh, you are, uh, by, by being a, a public employee, Everybody has a right to kind of weigh in on your job because they're paying for it and it's democratically democratically governed. And that's always going to create some of these tensions. 
within that, I do think one thing uh, the teachers who feel more heard and engaged um, are, are conscious of, and there's groups like this, the National Network of State Teachers of the Year and various other teacher voice groups, Teach Plus, which who I think is in Cleveland, um, is partly what's being heard from the profession. Um, you, you'll certainly talk to a number of legislators and school board members who feel like mostly what they hear from teachers are they hear from the loudest teachers. And just like we were talking about the loudest parents at the school board meetings, mm -hmm. if there are teachers who are tweeting what a racist, terrible human being you are, that's not a great way to get a legislator or a school board member to say, tell me more. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem is when there's a handful of teachers engaging that way, other more quiet teachers who are waiting to be asked for their professional opinion feel like they're not getting heard, partly because they're getting drowned out by the noise. So just like we're talking about the need for the middle of communities to come up and stand together against destructive and toxic engagement in school board meetings and the rest, uh, it's really important that those engaged, thoughtful professionals who make up, I think, the vast majority of the profession make sure that they're being heard more than the teachers who are inclined to go on social media um, and, you know, invent. We have time for just one uh, one more question. So, and it's pretty, it's an interesting one because it gets back to the purpose of education. But do you believe that the push for career education in schools is prioritizing business and the economy over students' needs? Is this renewed focus on preparing students for workforce first, taking away from the purpose of preparing students to be well-rounded and prepared citizens? Rick, what do you think? It's a great question. I mean, this has historically been part of the concern about career and technical ed. Once upon a time that it was a dumping ground for kids who, you know, weren't academically gifted and then a dumping ground for kids with certain, demo, with certain demographic characteristics. Um, look, I mean, I think the really healthy place that the resurgence of interest in career and technical ed is coming from is a lot of people don't want to go to college and they feel like they're having to take student loans and they're borrowing money to get degrees that they don't really want in order because they need those pieces of paper to go get decent jobs. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of this is motivated by the idea that college should be a choice. College can be mm -hmm. a wonderful place if you want to go there and if you want to learn the things that are there, but nobody should feel like they have to go there to be allowed to get a good job. And I think so long as that's what CTE is doing and opening doors and creating opportunities uh, for good and rewarding lives uh, of work, that's a fantastic thing. And that can absolutely be done consistently with rigorous academic instruction and attention to civics and values. It's also the case that it become an excuse not to do the other work. It can become a dumping ground. And it's very important that educators and communities and policymakers scrutinize what's going on and be asking hard questions about it. Pedro Nagar, do you agree with what Rick has said about, about career technical education or CTE? Well, I, I, I'm a real supporter of career and technical education. I think it's a great way to get kids into fields, particularly the STEM fields we discussed earlier. I, 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 um, you know, I've seen model programs in biotech and, and health sciences that really work well. What concerns me is that it not come at the expense of a liberal arts education kids students still need to know history they need to know uh, uh they need to write well they need to be exposed to music and art they need a balanced education and so um 
it should not be either or. I think we need both. We need to make sure kids are getting a well-rounded education, but also the chance to get their foot in the door so they can get uh, some specialization. But the, the, the concern of the cost of college is a real problem, but we need uh, people to be well-educated. Uh, our democracy is in trouble if people um, are not. And um, I'm, I'm worried. Uh, we would, we would, I, I see so many states now banning books um, and really denying kids the right to learn our history in the, the good, the bad of American history, which is, I think is essential for, uh, for citizenship in this country. You know, your chapter on civic education, the, the two chapters I love most were the chapters on civic education, which is gets to that point you were just raising, and the one on teacher pay, um, where I think you guys both explored quite a lot of common ground. The book, uh, again, is called A Search for Common Ground, Conversations About the Toughest Questions in K-12 Education. The co-authors are our guests today, Pedro Nogueira and Rick Hess. Gentlemen, thank you so much. This has been just a fantastic conversation. Thanks for having us. This exactly. is outstanding. And, and I'm glad to hear Barbara's out of prison. I, I really was trying to disparage her with my comment. I understand. We understand completely. Our <laughs> forum today is part of our Education Innovation Series sponsored by Nordson Corporation. It's also part of our Authors in Conversation Series, which is supported by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture, also by the John P. Murphy Foundation and the Cuyahoga County Public Library. We would also like to thank the Center for Educational Leadership at Cleveland State University once again for your partnership on today's forum. If you'd like to read Rick and Pedro's book, you can support, uh, you can do so when you support any way you want, really. But if you'd like to support a local bookseller, you can uh, pick it up at Max Bax, 20% off if you are a City Club member. Um, you can email the email address at the bottom of the screen, that's info at cityclub.org for more information, or you can also find out more on the archive page for today's forum. Tomorrow, Friday, January 20th, we'll be in person for our Friday Forum, joined by Steve Phillips, founder of Democracy in Color, author of his latest book, How We Win the Civil War. And next week on Monday, we'll be joined by team leadership from the Cleveland Guardians. That's Monday the 23rd. On Tuesday the 24th, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman joins us. On the 25th, Cleveland City Council President Blaine Griffin joins us. And then on Friday, we'll have a conversation between two international leaders who were instrumental in ending apartheid in South Africa. You can find out more about these forums and what's happening the week following and uh, and and the week following that as well at cityclub.org. That brings us to the end of our program today. Again, thank you so much to Rick Hess and Pedro Nogueira. Thank you all for joining us today and sending your questions in. Our forum is now adjourned.